A good story tends to start with a humble beginning. When Glenn Bell started Taco Bell back in 1962, I don't think he ever imagined the success that it would amount to today. And that continued success over the years has come directly from our people. Every day, it's our people who powerfully fuel this brand. Today, I'm thrilled to be recording live surrounded by some of the most important people in Taco Bell's storied history, our franchisees. Speaking of the pursuit of passion, I am joined by Guy Raz. Guy has had an incredible story of success, building his own movements from the ground up while making choices each and every day to live Moss. Sounds like a lot of our franchisees. He is the CEO of Built It Productions and the creative force behind How I Built This podcast. We're going to talk about the entrepreneurial spirit that lies within all of us and how we can all pull inspiration from our roots, our past, and our humble beginnings. Do you know, I'm just gonna tell you a quick aside. When I first met you at uh, Taco Bell headquarters, um, I, I went and looked at the timeline, the hist historical timeline. I love doing that. I've done that at Procter & Gamble and General Mills. When I go visit companies, I love to see how they lay out their stories, Cliff Bar. And uh, I was truly sad to discover, I should have known this, that Glenn Bell died several years ago because he was somebody I would have put on How I Built This in a second, right? I mean, the guy started a taco joint, and look, it's one of the biggest QSRs in the, in the world, yeah. right? Amazing story. Yeah. Um, and God, what, what, uh, how cool would it be to have him on the show, it, right? I'll tell you what, I saw something the other day leading up to the convention that we're yeah. at, and there was a picture of Glenn Bell on the left side of the page and me on the right side of the page. And I said, please do not insult <laughs> Glenn Bell. But I mean, he and I on the same page together. So, so, I mean, this is next year is 60 years for Taco Bell. Wow. And he started with a taco shop. We actually have the little shop um, in our parking lot. Yeah. And today we have 7,500 restaurants, almost 13 billion in system sales, and just an amazing brand. Yeah. And really at a time when you know, that kind of food was even in California, right, was not, yeah. not really well known. No, no. And we still struggle with that today outside the U.S. as we, mm. our biggest opportunity is outside the U.S. Yeah. as we only have five, 600 restaurants and it's, that's a big focus for ours, but we have to educate people on how to eat a taco. They have to understand that, that Mexican food is the greatest cuisine on planet Earth. They really do. Yeah. Yes. So, Guy, let's, we, you are, we hired you to be our host today at our two-day convention here in Colorado Springs. We have over 1,000 people. It's our first get-together since COVID hit. You were amazing today. And uh, the, the feedback from the franchisees was overwhelming. Just first thoughts on being a part of it today. You know, I, 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 have, I love studying companies. I love studying um, how they operate. I love their hist studying their histories. Um, and I love studying, uh, obviously, founders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs. Um, and one of the things that has been so interesting, because I don't, when I, when I have an opportunity to come and, and speak and talk about the future or the past or creativity or the entrepreneurial spirit, um, I'm not, I, I don't come to it to just come and talk and then take off. I, I actually will only do it if I know that I'm going to walk away with actionable, um, and interesting information that I can add to my body of knowledge, you know, because I'm constantly looking to connect the dots, you know, between trends and, 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 and you, know, you know, 
why certain things happen and strategic decisions. And so one of the things that's been so interesting to me is to see how this organization operates because Taco Bell's a brand. Um, it's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fast food QSR restaurant, but it's also an association of hundreds of constituents who own their own piece of it, um, who all have, you know, strong views on how it should run, who all have really smart perspectives, um, who understandably can be difficult at times as, as any constituency can be. But what, what's really interesting to me is to see how um, strong the relationship is. Just hearing about the, this kind of ecosystem and this, uh, this feedback loop of innovation, idea, idea, innovation, from sort of corporate to franchisees, from the franchisees to corporate, you often find in, in this relationship that the constituencies, wh whether it's franchisees or some other structure, right? Network television, because all these stations are kind of independently owned, mm -hmm. that there's a lot of tension between corporate and the, you know, the, the, the people around the country, the ground truth people. Um, and I, not, I haven't seen that, and mm. that's really interesting um, and something that you know, I think is worth, worth studying. When I first came here two years ago, I've been here a little over two years, everyone said one of the real competitive advantages of Taco Bell was the system and exactly mm. what you talked about is the, the togetherness and the, the free flow of ideas back and forth. And it truly is amazing. And, and like you said, there's, there's all kinds of points of tension, yeah, which, which there should be, right? There should you be. have to, yes. Yeah, and, and, and I think because of the mindset of both sides, we use that constructively to move the business forward. And I think that really, we talk about secret sauce at Taco Bell all the time, but I think that's probably at the core of the secret sauce. And in fact, when you have an organization that functions with total consensus, that organization will inevitably fail. And a great example of this is, is the Bay of Pigs invasion. If you look at the way those decisions were made by JFK and his administration, they were all on the same page, 100% mm -hmm. on the same page. And that was a failure. There was nobody in that room who said, hey, maybe this won't work. Mm -hmm. Maybe this will fail. But if you look at how they handled the Cuban Missile Crisis you know, a, a year later, or you know, less than a year later, that was different because there was tension. There was a lot of tension. And in the end, a decision was made that not everybody agreed with. But ultimately, that's how great organizations are. You have to grind through the process, and a decision has to be made. It's funny how your background just came out because I read about you that you studied history. So that came out right now. So I mean, it's funny because I remember when I was in college, my dad used to say to me, as, as, as any responsible parent would say, what are you going to do with a history degree? And, and not only that, but my focus was on European imperial and colonial history and with a focus on Eastern Europe, right? A totally, you, you would think, a totally useless degree. Well, in fact, my first big job as a journalist when I was 25, I was very fortunate. I, was, I became the East European bureau chief for NPR. So it was just total, like, yeah. you know. Did you uh, say, take that, Dad? Yes, I did. It was serendipity, you know, <laughs> that I had this background in, you know, in, in sort of Balkan history and, you know, Eastern Europe and, and some Soviet history and, and Germany. And it really, it was lucky, you know, had that foundation to build on. Yeah. I don't want to spend a lot of time on your background or your journey, but I do think it's important. You had a great education, 
uh, and then you got into journalism. And just talk a little bit about what inspired you to become a journalist. I, I wanted to make a mark on the world. I think a lot of, understandably, most a lot of young people are idealistic and they want to make a difference. And for me, journalism was a path to um, create, in, in my own way, better understanding between people. Obviously, I, me, Guy Raz, I wasn't going to change the world, but if I could have a tiny impact on, uh, on it, um, that's what I wanted to do. And I really wanted to cover, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent, even when I was in college. And I wanted to go overseas. I wanted to see the world. And I wanted to understand why, why um, nations um, get into conflict. Why are um, Kashmiris you know, in India in conflict? Why are Kosovo, Kosovars and Serbs uh, in conflict? Why are Israelis and Palestinians in conflict, Shia and Sunni? And I really wanted to pursue that because I thought if I could understand, if I could help illuminate this and, and explain the, you know, the, the humanity of both sides, then maybe I can you know, could lead to more understanding. And that's really what motivated me and why I was inspired to do it. I did go on to cover many conflicts, Iraq, Afghanistan, the Balkans, uh, and Israel and, and Palestine. And, um, and you know, I was able to try and apply those principles, but what I, what I, what I came to realize over you know, a career of doing that um, and being overseas was um, I was seeing the world come apart and not come closer together. And that became, and I think even more so today in a lot of ways, um, and I, I, but in my head, I still thought, how can I, how can I do something that has an impact mm -hmm. that maybe, maybe makes people think about the world in a way that will push them to, to try and, and make it better. And it, it sounds a little hokey, I no. know, but um, but that's the truth. I mean, that's that's. And in in, you were you were a journalist for about fifteen years, something like yeah. that. And did you did you feel like you you accomplished what you started out to, to do? No, no. I mean, to the contrary. I mean, I I think that by the time I, I sort of transitioned out of being a reporter and journalist about ten years ago, you know, I felt like um, I could report on a story or try and um, convene a conversation, um, but of the, the anger and the vitriol that would come at you was already becoming louder and louder. Today it's at a different level, right? We're in a yeah. different league. Um, and I think so much of that has to do with, um, you know, um, people are fixed, increasingly fixed in their views, their worldviews. Yeah. And for me, um, I'm not fixed in my views. I, I've always thought that it was a virtue not, um, not to, be certain about mm -hmm. virtually anything. I'm certain about very few things. I'm certain that I love my kids. I'm certain that being a dad is the most important thing to me. I'm certain that, you know, I believe that people should be treated with respect and dignity and, and you know, basic human rights should be respected. But there are other things that I'm always, I always want to be convinced. And, and if somebody can, if somebody has a different view on something mm -hmm. than I do, and they have a really great argument, and they can persuade me to change my view. I love that. Yeah. That's, but I think the problem is, and I think a lot of people agree, by the way. I think, I think you're probably like that. I think a lot of people are like that. The problem is that we have in our country and in the world, it, it, the, the incentives to be like that aren't there. The incentives to be really rigid yeah. um, are stronger. And I, saw, I already saw, started seeing that you know, 10, 12 years ago. And to me, I thought, well, maybe I can make an impact if I leave the, the world of news and journalism and focus on the world of human behavior mm -hmm. and also 
um, human creativity. Yeah. Well, in a way, your new role in life is still reporting, right? Yeah. It's, re it's reporting in a different in a way. Different way. Yeah. Uh, so talk about what you do now. Yeah, so um, I, I kind of entered into the world of what we're sort of calling podcasting more than 10 years ago, and now, of course, it is. So I was kind of, or it's crazy to think I was early. It's only, you know, it's, podcasting hasn't been around that long, yeah. but I got into it, and it was, it was like a backwater when I first got into it. I mean, this was really, um, it was like going into exile. I mean, I, I had been a host on, on All Things Considered on NPR. I had an audience of, you know, 4 million people every Saturday and Sunday, and I went down to like 100,000. You know, on um, when I when I got into podcasting and and left that that world behind and and started um, a little production company, um, but really what what I wanted to focus on was why um, what is it that motivates us as a species, mm -hmm. right, to do certain things and and how can we think about um, the opportunities in front of us? So so it sounds very abstract, but let me try to kind of um, clarify it. There is no single species that we know of, with the exception of humans, that has the capacity to imagine the future and the past, right? You've all know Harari wrote, Sapiens wrote, wrote about this and codifies a beautiful book. There's no species that has a capacity to um, collaborate in the way we do. There are some that can collaborate, but not in an intentional way, like mm -hmm. ants just know what to do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, there's no animal that does things um, for any specific reason with the, you know, unless it's threatened or harmed or hungry. You know, we do those things, and we're this incredible, amazing species, troubled too. But to me, the idea of looking at humans as this kind of wondrous thing was more interesting. And that's, that sort of began this journey that I took first at the TED Radio Hour and then into what I do now, which is somewhat related to that because I'm, I'm, with how I built this, it's not a business show. What I do on how I built this is not tell stories of great businesses and great founders. I'm not there to burnish their reputations. I'm not there to, um, to do a PR thing for them. Um, it's not about that. It's about extracting mm -hmm. their wisdom and their mm -hmm. experiences mm -hmm for the audience we serve. So what I do on How I Built This is I tell human stories, human yeah. dramas. And there are no, in my view, there are very few dramas that are better than business stories, creating mm -hmm. a business. Because, I mean, you've been involved in startups, you know this, there's pain, there's misery, there's failure, there's lying on the bathroom floor crying. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's all those yeah. things. Um, there's, you know, potential for catastrophe, there's risk, and then there's incredible, it can be incredible triumph. Yeah. And that's dramatic. And, and when I started to see the outlines of that, you know, 10 or so years ago, I really started to think about this show, which eventually I started. So how I built this, um, you have entrepreneurs and business yep. leaders. And so what, what I find interesting among people that have done really great things is is there some common thread yeah. that, that kind of flows through all of them? So yeah. that would be my question. What, what are those few things that flow through all of I them? I mean, th there's some obvious things that I think we all know, perseverance and you know, the this, this sense of optimism and, and a true belief in, in your mission. But I think at a deeper level, um, 
and I think you'll be able to relate to this as somebody who was in sales in your beginning of your career, is the ability to withstand rejection mm. and to keep going. You know, I, I love that Winston Churchill quote, you know, the, the <laughs> definite, you know, right? Um, when, you're, when you find yourself in, in hell, keep going, right. right? This idea that you will get knocked down and you will get knocked down again and again and again. And it doesn't matter if you're Michael Jordan or Howard Schultz. You know, you are going to be knocked down at some point and many points along, along your journey, especially when you're starting out. And the people who are, the, are most successful are the ones who just somehow persevere and get through it and, and continue to get up. It sounds very cliched, but what's so interesting about the entrepreneurs I interview is I find time and again that sales, people who start in sales are often the, are often the best mm -hmm. founders of businesses because they're used to hearing no. And by the way, I think all of us have the capacity to develop that, that, uh, that, that thick skin. Mm -hmm. It's a skill. You know, some people are born with it and they can just deal with it and roll with it. But most of us have a hard time with rejection because it's, I think, biologically, we're wired to, you know, to want to be accepted yeah. and loved. You know, you go into a meeting with a bunch of people and you have a great idea for, I don't know, Taco Bell, somebody's got a great idea and they want everybody to love it, right? right? Or whatever it might be. We are wired to want to be loved. And so when, when, when people reject an idea, it, it makes us recoil. Yeah. And I think that comes from you know, our, early, our early origins yeah. you know, as, as, as a species. What, what, what's fascinating to me is the people who, many people who started in sales, like I think of Topa Watana. Topa Watana is one of my favorite entrepreneurs. He was, a, when he was a student at Georgia, uh, University of Georgia, he got a job working for ADT security systems and would go door to door to door to door in Athens, Georgia, and just a door would slam in his face. Slam, no, I'm not interested, not interested. But he figured out very early on that the math was on his side. He only had to get, you know, his hit rate only had to be like mm -hmm. one out of 120 mm -hmm. houses to make a good commission. Mm -hmm. Well, that stayed with him, and he went through several different failed startups until he landed on the one that worked, which is Calendly, which is now valued at $3 billion. It's a, you know, an incredible service. I think a lot of people use it. It's a free service for many people, but many big companies like Zillow and, you know, and others use Calendly, um, their enterprise software. And you know, he started that on his own with nobody behind him, but he, he, he he had such a thick skin because mm. he had heard no for so long that he knew that no wasn't right. wasn't the end point. Right. It was just it was like a natural pit stop right. on the right. path to success. Right. I've read a few of Malcolm Gladwell's books, yeah. and a couple of them would, and maybe this is a little crude, and I'm sure he would be very upset for me to simplify <laughs> some of his philosophies. But a lot of what he says is that great success is often based on timing. Yeah. That if you weren't born in a certain time or a certain yeah. time in history, what do you think about that? I think there's some truth to that. And I and and by the way, I'm not a you know, I don't I think we need to disabuse ourselves of this idea that every single person who's successful got there, you know, by their own bootstraps. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um you know, the reality is that we we do live in a society where advantage and privilege does um tend to, you know, tend to um let's say advantage and privilege certain yep. people over yep. others. Yep. And I think, and I, I don't say that to 
to take away from the success of, of, of people. I say that because I think it's actually a help, helpful and instructive for us to understand that if we believe in opportunity, if we believe that actually, because I do, I actually believe that anybody can mm -hmm. be successful. Mm -hmm. But if we all, if we do believe that, and we want to see that come true, we also need to acknowledge that, you know, there are certain things that 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 privilege certain people simply because of who they are, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and myself included. Um, you know, do I do I if I wasn't born in the United States, would I have been become a foreign correspondent for NPR? If I wasn't didn't have two parents who paid for my college, if I you know, didn't, didn't have white skin. I mean, all these things are yeah. factors. And I think, again, not to take away from anybody's success, right. but it's, I think it's important to acknowledge these things so we can expand opportunity yeah. to yeah. everybody. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about brands in the world today. And the, the, the title of our podcast here is Restless Creativity. And really all that means is the pursuit of something new yeah. and different, curiosity. Uh, what, what role do you think that plays for brands like Taco Bell or any other brands that might be listening today? It's the a, it's a single most important factor. So I, I've, I've talked about this before, which is I believe intelligence is vastly overrated. Okay? You're intelligent. Everybody in this room is intelligent. Big deal. Big deal. Okay? In, intelligence and the way we define it is essentially meaningless. What ma because intelligence is... You know, we think of intelligence as maybe a fixed thing or something that you're born with or you're good at tests. What matters is curiosity, and that is a choice. You can choose to be curious, and it's really simple. You can say, hey, that's an interesting poster over there. Oh, look at that timeline, and I'm, you know, I, I, I think I'm much, much more curious than intelligent. I get to Taco Bell, and I'm looking at that timeline, and I'm like, this is really cool. But everybody has that choice, right? We all have that choice to just look at the world around us and, and, and just ask questions. And the other thing is, we, I, I find that, um, and I, I'm, I'm sure you're the same way, I always gravitate towards people who are more intelligent than me. I want to be surrounded by them. I want to work with them. I want my team to be smarter than me because that's how I get better. Yeah. You know, and I want them to be, and I want them to be more curious. And so curiosity, it, it's like, it just allows you to kind of pursue all of these different possibilities. And look, we're hearing about this not just in, in, in your organization, but across the board in this pandemic era. I think it's really unleashed a lot of creativity. And the reason why is because for so long, I think most companies that were doing things well or good enough, mm -hmm. they didn't have the incentive to try out radical things. Mm -hmm. And by the way, people in the organization didn't have an incentive really to push it because why would you push it when um, you know you might get slapped down, mm -hmm. right? The problem with that is is that it it stifles creativity. But now when you when you have a an, an organization or institution that really allows that to flourish and you unleash it and you encourage it. You're going to encourage stupid, what we might think yeah. of stupid ideas. Yeah. But stupid ideas lead to great ideas. Mm -hmm. Stupid ideas lead to a less stupid idea. And, a, and a, what, it's a terrible word to use. But a silly idea, a radical idea, leads to, eventually leads to something that is actually pretty amazing. Right? I mean, I mean just think about, I, just off the top of my head, I, I just think about a, a, an idea that came on how I built this several years ago. There's this guy, Tariq Farid. OK, he started a business. 
He was the son of Pakistani immigrants. They had a flower shop in Hartford, Connecticut. Okay, very poor family. He grew up working in this uh, flower shop. And one day, he says to his mom, he's like, you know, uh, he's Muslim. And he knew that when you go and see another Muslim family, you don't bring a bottle of wine, because many Muslims don't drink alcohol. But you bring fruit, bowls of fruit. This was a very common thing, and very common in Muslim countries. He's like, hey, mom, you know, you know um, I wonder if we could bring like bouquets of flowers that are shaped like fruit, okay? Like carved like, you know, strawberries or cantaloupe. Now, you, you, if you would have heard that 30 years ago, you said, that's the dumbest idea on the planet. Well, I, I think you know where I'm going with this. It's called edible arrangements. It's worth half a billion dollars. And Tariq Farid is an incredibly successful businessman. But when he came up with that idea, it was people so stupid. Right. Who's going to buy a bouquet of fruit? But you know what I mean? So yeah. it, over time, he yeah. developed this into something that really became exciting. And look, 10 years ago, five years ago, people would have said, why are you wasting your time on TikTok? Why mm -hmm. are you wasting your time with this drive-through, double drive-through, or mobile apps, or whatever it might be? Or why are, you know, why are we um, working with Lil Nas X or whoever? Somebody would have said that, right. and that's OK. But somebody has to put that idea out there in order for everybody to understand that, actually, this is pretty great. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Last topic, a lot of people have said that COVID accelerated the future, that all of a sudden we've, we've, we've gone five years in the future because we, of what happened during COVID. And you were brilliant today, and I know the people that are listening today, um, many of them weren't in the room today, and, but you really what, what was compelling for me is your conversation about the world has changed, and we as business people, or just even humans living in the world today, we're yeah. going to have to change our behaviors and our mindsets and how we operate every day if we want to stay relevant. Just talk about that in general for who's ever listening out there. Yeah, I mean, I think, and you know this, I mean, and, and it cuts across every industry and category. I mean, COVID, this unanticipated, you know, black swan event, led to unanticipated consequences and changes, uh, many of which will be for the better, right? Um, I think it forced us to ask questions about the way we live our lives. It forced us to ask questions about the sustainability of trying to raise a family in America, right? Um, I think it, ra for, for example, all of a sudden, um, millions of parents became home teachers. Right? And then we started to, to, to ask questions and to understand that, you know, by the way, many millions of those parents are single parents who are trying to do a job and raise kids. Um, and so I think it opened up a whole series of questions and conversations around the society we have and the society we want to structure and how to create um, you know, a, a society where there's all kinds of opportunities, but it also accelerated innovation in, a way, in ways that we could not anticipate. I talked about this a little, a little today, which is, so many companies and businesses, and yours included, um, had, were forced to make changes because it was a survival mechanism. I mean, in March of 2020, every major corporation company in the United States was anticipating disaster, right? The stock market, Black Tuesday or Monday, or whatever it was, March, March 12th, 2020. Um, God, we all remember that day. I sold every one of our, of uh, everything in our portfolio. My wife great. is still mad at I'm me. I'm sure she is. 
I'm sure she's really mad. She's at me. still mad at yeah, me because you're thinking, because you're looking, and you're saying our whole portfolio has gone down 40. percent I got to work save, another 20 years. We should save what we have, which which a lot of you know a lot of people did, and was not an irrational decision. But look, we know that companies had to do things that they would never have done, and certainly on an expedited timeline. To in three weeks, you know, I talk about Zumba because I love that story. In three weeks, they set up a live stream platform. They didn't even have one mm -hmm. on, on March 12, 2020. And there was no workable platform. They, they weren't there yet. It would have, it, they were two, three years off. They did it in three weeks that enabled their instructors to do live Zooms. I, I, I work with a, a, a personal trainer on Zoom. I mean, one day he was in my house, and the next day he hasn't. I haven't seen him in a year and a half. Yeah. But I will never go back to the in-person thing because it's convenient for me. It's easier for him. He doesn't have to drive. He gets paid the same amount, and it's great. It's a great relationship. And, and um, so I, I think that this COVID period, we know it's accelerated change, and I think that it's shown people that you can have radical ideas. And I think it's given pe people in organizations permission to go into a, conf a virtual conference room and say, hey, you know what, guys? Um, our business is down 20%. Here's an idea. It's nuts. And, and everyone's like, let's hear it. Please bring it, bring it on. That's really important because that's what is going to lead to you know, the breakthroughs and the, and the kinds of things that um, you know, take a good company and yeah. make it, in yeah. the words of Jim Collins, great. Yeah. I, I think, for me, when I look at brands or companies, that the technology and the human behavior has accelerated so fast that we really are, or, or businesses are at a critical point right now because if they can't pivot as fast as technology, the consumer, uh, their customer, I, I think they're going to be in trouble. On the other hand, if you have the courage to do it, the opportunities are endless. I agree. And there's also an important thing to remember, which is you do want to follow the consumer, but you also want to remember that you have to lead the consumer, right? I mean, the great, greatest example of this is Apple. Apple still leads the consumer. Mm. They tell the consumer, I mean, this is Steve Jobs' famous dictum, right? We tell you what you need, and they still do. Um, and I think that there's an opportunity to do both, right? When you're talking about consumer brands, particularly food brands, you definitely want to follow the consumer. I mean, look at where, you know, some of the most interesting brands in America now are coming from Asia, right? The, a lot of the QSRs are coming from, I, I live in, in the Bay Area, and Berkeley, California, University of California, Berkeley has a huge student population from China, Taiwan. Why, are, why do you see Chinese, Taiwanese, Singaporean um, fast food chains, Korean, in Berkeley? You do because they know that there's a huge market. Okay, that's really exciting. So you want to follow the trends, but you also want to introduce things that lead the, that that you know that bring yeah. people in. And so I think that's really exciting. That mm. to me is what's really exciting about where we're headed, yeah. and that's where I see a lot of opportunities. Yeah. We could go on forever, but I know we can't. So <laughs> uh, with that, guy, uh, the the toughest question of all, Please. which is when you go to Taco Bell, <laughs> okay. uh, what is your go-to item? Um, I would go to Taco Bell in high school all the time because it was right across from my, really close to my high school, Chatsworth High School, uh, LA, big LA public school. Um, and I was a vegetarian then. I'm no longer a vegetarian, but I am still very much, my heart is with the bean burrito, the bean and cheese burrito. 
you can't do better than can't that. Can't do better than my that. First Put the onions in there. My first yeah. day at Taco Bell, they asked me, what's your go-to item? I said, the bean burrito with green sauce. And at the time, we had just eliminated green oh sauce. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> so you we, were like, great, we have, great first day. Exactly. This is, but we have now brought back the green great. sauce. So. Okay, good. Hey, guy, I can't thank you enough my for pleasure. being uh, with us tonight, we have a massive audience. Thank with you. Us. Hey. Oh my God! Very cool. Look at that so, audience. Um, These guys are you, something. You just keep doing what you're doing because Thanks. it's truly amazing. And what you set out to do in 1995, you're doing it now, and uh, you're making a difference in the world. So Thanks, you just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. So I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Uh, you can tune in to wherever you listen to your podcast to listen to Restless Creativity. And uh, I, I don't really know what to say other than it's just been a thrill to talk to Guy. Thank you so much. And talk to you next time.